This week on Making Contact. My main goal here is to get this place to be to return back to the Indians where we can take care of it and we can manage it ourselves. It's where our people are buried. We need to protect this. Broken treaties, contested land, reservations, loss of resources. Land sovereignty is a key issue for indigenous people. On this edition, we'll take a look at the Mapuche people in Argentina, the Shuswap Nation in the British Columbia province of Canada, and the Oglala Sioux in South Dakota in the United States. I'm Amy Pomerlo, your host this week on Making Contact, an international radio program creating connections between people, vital ideas, and important information. The native Mapuche people in southern Argentina date back 13,000 years. Now much of this land is controlled by the Italian clothing company Benetton. The Carlo Benetton family is the largest landholder in Argentina, owning 2.2 million acres in resource-rich Patagonia. 10% of the company's wool production comes from this property. A debate over land recently heated up when the Benetton subsidiary, Argentine Southern Lands Company, pressed charges against a Mapuche family for occupying land they claimed as theirs. In May 2004, the family was forced to abandon their ancestral lands. Pauline Bartolone has more. The Mapuche have gathered in southern Argentina for religious ceremonies like this one for thousands of years. In what is called a camaruco, the natives of Patagonia wake up before dawn to perform rituals. Men and women chant and play instruments, while others circle around an altar of sticks and barrels. For several days, they camp outside on a clearing below the region's steep mountains. The rituals worship the sun, which they believe will give them strength in the newest struggle that faces them. Integral to the gatherings are discussions around fires while sipping yerba mate and feasting on fire-roasted horse meat. The lanco, a religious leader, joins them with his corn drink, or mudai, and tells stories of his people's eviction by white settlers. The Mapuche call white people Winca. Their history with Wincas is not one of trust and friendship. During the conquest of the desert in the late 19th century, 100,000 Mapuche were killed by the Argentine military, soon after which most of the Mapuche-occupied territory was handed to British investors for free, in exchange for railroad construction. Most of the remaining Mapuche left subsistence farming in the countryside to work for the merging wool and railroad industry. In 2004, things haven't gotten much easier for his people, says Atilio Curignanco. Life isn't the same anymore. It's a lot more difficult. The Mapuches are accustomed to living in the country, in a place where they can make a life for themselves and be self-sustaining, like our grandfathers did. They made a life for themselves without being told what to do. They made a living. Modern-day Mapuches speak the language of their Spanish colonizers. Some live in concrete homes built by the government in small cities like Esquel, where Atelia lives. When he and his wife lost their jobs after the 2001 economic crisis, they decided to return to the land to start a family business and support themselves. 
En el, en el lugar nosotros estuvimos... We were on the land for about two months, maybe a little more. And in that time, we dug irrigation ditches and planted all kinds of vegetables, fruit trees, strawberries. We took a tin shack that we had made. And, well, we had made a lot of progress, as if we'd been there a year or a year and a half. When they came to kick us out, the police were surprised by how much we'd accomplished. Atilio and his family believed they were occupying an abandoned lot, one well-known in the Mapuche community to be available. But according to Benetton, the 540 hectares belongs to a subsidiary of theirs, the Argentine Southern Lands Company. In 1991, Benetton bought the British-owned company and is now the largest landowner in Argentina. Soon after the claim, security forces evicted the family and confiscated their belongings. We didn't cut any wire fences. We didn't put up a gate, go in at night or secretly, or put up any houses out of sight. We even waited for anybody that might show up with questions or with document proving ownership or the right to use the land, but nobody ever came. The only thing that arrived was the lawsuit, and we're still dealing with that. The Southern Lands Company pressed charges against Atilio and his wife Rosa for usurping the Santa Rosa estate in 2002. When the company tried to negotiate with the family to abandon pursuit of the land in exchange for dropped charges, Atilio and Rosa refused. Can you imagine that Benetton has 900,000 hectares of land? 900,000. It's every community's neighbor. It's a small country that they have here. If you go to Europe, you'd find smaller countries than what Benetton has here. Mauro Michan is from Mapuche organization Once de Octubre, named for the last day before Columbus came to the Americas. Michan says that Benetton's land holdings affects the entire Mapuche community. If you start to make a list of all the violations of human rights on behalf of Benetton, it will be innumerable. It's immense. There are people that can't get water because it's fenced off. There are people who can't fish in the streams, something that they've always done, and they can't now because they get shot at. They are creating police stations to protect the estates of the companies. Across the road from the Santa Rosa property, a community of eight families, mostly of Mapuche descent, are surrounded on all sides by fenced-off Benetton property. Doña Candelaria is an 84-year-old Mapuche woman who has to climb a Benetton fence to fetch water. Candelaria lives in La Leque, a community formed around an abandoned railroad station, just across the road from the Santa Rosa property. Not even a horse can leave, says Candelaria. It's all closed off, with a key. All the land is fenced off. Everything's ending here. In September 2003, the state-owned railroad company gave an eviction warning to Candelaria and her 50 neighbors. The plan is to use the Laleke houses for a tourist attraction in which the railway would transport visitors to the Laleke Museum, owned by and located on Benetton's largest estate. Attorney Manolo Makaisho provides legal support to the Laleke families and believes Benetton is behind the eviction. I think there's another reason for the eviction. 
Benetton's Southern Lands Company is interested in these houses for their own projects. That's why. Or Benetton's interested in getting these people out because they're afraid the Leleke families could become a nuisance or a threat because they might want to occupy some of the company's lands or create some legal conflict for the company. I think the biggest reason why this is happening is because of pressure by Benetton. Along with the dislocation of a community without readily available homes, Leleke's schoolhouse will be shut down. Maximiliano Ortico raises her children and grandchildren. Since her husband was laid off by the company after the Benetton acquisition, he lives outside of the community most of the week to earn money for the family. When railroad company representative Mauricio Mateo came to Leleke with an eviction warning, Maximiliano told him she has nowhere else to go. He never came to see us again. He left us with lies that he was going to take us to see a new house, and then he didn't do it. And up until now, he hasn't been seen again. And we didn't even know him before. All of a sudden, he showed up here to ask for the house and told us we had to leave. And, well, we don't know what we are going to do. I don't have a house. We stay here for the children so they can go to school. We always have had to pay the bills with little income. Mauricio Mateo was the one who delivered the notice to the Leleke families. He says that the railroad company doesn't call the state's action an eviction, since the houses were lent to the residents without a contract. The train isn't going anymore. Leleke is not a town, it's a train station. This land, that used to belong to the Argentine Railway Company, now belongs to the state. Even though laws exist to reserve land for native communities, Manolo Macacho says these laws are rarely abided by or enforced. He cites cases in which non-native landowners have set up estates inside native reserves and no action was taken against them. In the case of the Curignancos, Macacho says the family had legal right to obtain the Santa Rosa property. The land that the Curignancos lived on was land that was unoccupied. It was barren land that had apparently been abandoned or probably no one had ever owned it to begin with. That was the situation when the Curignancos found it. In terms of the condition of the land, there were no signs of it being put to use or that anyone had any kind of contact with this place. Here in our legislation, in our judicial system, land that no one owns belongs to the state. But there's another situation that needs to be kept in mind, that the indigenous communities are considered to have pre-existed the state. So a piece of land that appears to be state land could actually become land owned by an indigenous community when there's been some type of presence of that community on that land. While crafting Mapuche jewelry out of locally mined silver, Mauro Michan of Once de Octubre says evictions of his people will not continue. Benetton, in conjunction with the state, is only part of a larger system that endangers the Mapuche way of life. In response, they're reorganizing themselves across borders for their sovereignty. The Mapuche are not struggling against Benetton. The Mapuche are struggling for their rights. And in this process, we are finding a lot of enemies. But the objective of the Mapuche people is not to struggle against Benetton. We struggle for our freedom. In Patagonia, they are like a giant that comes to step on people who has no one to control them. 
So the circumstances of no control is the easiest environment for this all to happen. And the state opens the doors for these giants to come in. The state can't go against these companies, because in its absence, the state practically is these companies. You know, it's like a great sickness. So that's why I tell you, when a mining company comes, when Benetton comes, when they come, whoever they are, they're going to make new enemies and show their true face. A U.S. Benetton representative agreed to arrange an interview, but didn't before airtime. The families of Leleke are still waiting on further action from the state regarding their eviction. In Patagonia, I'm Pauline Bartolone for Making Contact. In anticipation of the 2010 Winter Olympic Games, parent company Nippon Cable has proposed building a multi-million dollar expansion of the local ski resort. Located in the interior of the British Columbia province of Canada, more than 200 miles away from Vancouver, the expansion would make an already existing ski area grow five times its current capacity. However, this expansion would encroach on lands which have been used by generations of indigenous nations. Miho Kim is an information activist at the data center based in Oakland, California. She spoke with Art Manuel, former chief of the Nesconlith Band of the Shuswap Tribal Council. Since 2002, he's been active in organizing Native people throughout Canada and traveled to Japan to meet with organizations trying to get the Japan-based Nippon Cable to honor neighbor relations agreements signed years ago. Meanwhile, settlement camps set up by those who claim Sun Peaks Resorts sits on their homeland have been destroyed and many have been arrested by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The uh, impact, though, covers the whole area that we hunt and fish in because uh, basically they're looking not just at uh, skiing as being the primary activity of this development. They're looking at it as being an all-year-round resort where they bring, in the wintertime, they have uh, those ski-doos and those things travel pretty fast and they go a long distance and then... uh, Summertime, they have all-terrain vehicles, so when you start having uh, 24,000 bed units and hundreds of thousands of people coming in and out using those kinds of recreation uh, vehicles and that, they will disrupt uh, the uh, hunting and the fishing and the berry-picking areas in that whole region. So, so. How, how was it that uh, this uh, Nippon Cable Corporation was able to um, develop on the land that belongs to your community? Yeah, well, there, there is competing, what you call competing pr- property interests with regard to land. You know, ever since British Columbia uh, became a province in 1871, they've been claiming exclusive 100% uh, ownership and jurisdiction over land and resources. We fought against that, and in December 11th, 1997, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada decided a case called the Dalgamuk decision, and uh, it recognized that in all of British Columbia, where there have been no treaties signed, that the Indian people have Aboriginal title in the land. And so so basically what you're saying is the Supreme Court upheld your position that the traditional territory belongs to the Aboriginal peoples that have occupied the land um, long before even Canada or British Columbia was established? 
Yeah, that's and that, mm-hmm. to this day that land has not been ceded. It hasn't been ceded at all, and uh, and what we're saying is that the decision-making power of our property interest is also uh, with regard to deciding how large the ski resort should be. Indian people have to be consulted. They have to be accommodated in terms of their property interest and title to be able to make decisions. If Indian people in British Columbia don't defend their Aboriginal title, the province of British Columbia will use a, a legal defense in, in Canadian law, which is called sleeping on your rights. If you sleep on your rights and the government goes ahead and develops something and you don't object, you don't say nothing, and then five, ten years you come back and you say, we didn't want that and we want to, to talk about it, we want compensation, that the government will say, well, you heard about this, you did nothing, you slept on your rights, you don't have those anymore. So they have to go out, they have to demonstrate, and they've had a lot of people arrested, so the government knows darn well that the, that the people don't like that expansion, and they really want uh, you know American people to boycott Sun Peak Ski Resort. We don't want anybody to go up there, mm-hmm. and if there's groups that have considered to go up there, they should send letters to the Sun Peaks telling them that they need to settle the Indian land question before they would go. Basically, the the ski resort will cause people to lose uh, a great, a high level of independence. Uh, in, in Canada, the um, Indian people are the poorest people in the country. Um, Indian people have high unemployment, low, low education according to the white standards of education. Uh, but that mean, also means that they, they need to live on some form of social assistance. And uh, in Canada, where it works out to right now is I think about $165 in social welfare for one person on an Indian reserve. And out of per that- Per month? Per month, yeah. And they have to pay uh, rent out of that. They have to pay uh, all of their clothing and other things out of that money uh, and plus food. And so, you know, you could not, you can't put that any kind of decent diet for your children on the table uh, with that kind of money. And so hunting and fishing still is a very important part of their mixed economy because you, in our area, you can still get salmon, uh, you can still get moose, you can still get deer, but when something like Sun Peaks moves in that's, that that resort development, they say they're going to create jobs, but they don't talk about how they're taking food off the table of the people. Mm-hmm. There's no consideration, so they take away property rights uh, in terms of not recognizing your Supreme Court recognized title, and then at the same time, they say they're trying to help you when they're actually taking away things. That was Art Manuel, former chief of the Nescon Lith Band of the Shoe Swap Nation, speaking to Miho Kim of the Data Center. We'll have more about Indigenous land sovereignty in a few moments. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for cassette or CD copies of this program, please call 800 529 5736. That's 800-529-5736. You can also visit our website at radioproject.org. The continuing struggle for tribal sovereignty and land repatriation is at the forefront of issues facing the Great Sioux Nation in South Dakota. 
The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 gave the entire western half of the state to the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota Sioux. But by 1890, the U.S. government had broken that treaty and pushed the tribes onto reservations. For the last 114 years, the Sioux have worked to hold the U.S. government to its treaty obligations. Today, a land management dispute between the Oglala Sioux Tribe and the Park Service over part of the Badlands National Park threatens tribal control over part of the remaining reservation lands. Correspondent Charles Michael Ray has this report. The flag of the Oglala Sioux Tribe flaps in the wind above Stronghold Table in the Badlands of South Dakota. A few tents and a trailer are perched on this plateau near the edge of a jagged cliff that drops off into the Badlands Valley below. This is a protest camp. It was established in the spring of 2002 to call for a return of this land to tribal control. Tony Tubles helped start this camp. Tubles says this site is sacred to the Lakota. In the first days of 1891, the survivors of the Wounded Knee Massacre fled to this area to escape the advancing cavalry. This is our, our graveyard here. It's where our people are buried, and uh, we need to protect this. My main goal here is to get this place to be to return back to the Indians, where we can take care of it and we can manage it ourselves, and we can watch our cemeteries. Stronghold Table falls within the Badlands National Park, and the park is divided into two parts, the north unit, where the main tourist sites are located, and the south unit, which is also part of the Pine Ridge Reservation. In 1941, the U.S. Department of Defense turned much of the South Unit into a bombing and gunnery range, forcing the indigenous residents off the land. Peter Capicella, attorney for the Oglala Sioux Tribe, says reservation areas are often the first to be taken when the federal government needs land. It seems like the government throughout the 20th century has focused on Indian lands for public works projects and for Defense Department projects like the gunnery range. So the tribes really bear a disproportionate brunt of these types of projects and programs. Capicella says in 1968, Congress established a national monument on this site, and by 1976, the Park Service had worked out an agreement with the Okwala Sioux Tribe to share management of this land as a national park. But today, that agreement has broken down. Tribal officials say the dispute centers over control of the rich cultural and paleontological resources of the Badlands. Protesters camping on the stronghold table, like Ernie Tubles, say fossils are at the center of this dispute. The only really, really big thing that they want this area for is the mineral resources and the fossil resources, because it is one of the richest areas in the world of fossil resources and minerals, you know. We're going to get this land back, and that's all there's to it. Tribal residents allege that the Park Service has been mismanaging this land for years. They are upset that four-wheel drives have been off-roading here, treading near grave sites and on teepee rings. But Bill Supernop, superintendent for the Badlands National Park, says the Park Service is concerned about preserving all of the natural resources on the Badlands. Supernop says this issue doesn't only revolve around control of the land, but also the Park Service obligation to protect the rich fossil resources in this area. In 1999, our rangers on patrol discovered that there were obvious traces of fossil poachers having come in and excavated unlawfully portions of the uh, bone bed and removed fossils from the park in violation of federal law. Some of the National Park Service have accused tribal members of poaching fossils from an area known as the Titanothere Graveyard. 
It's a few acres of land that is chocked full of mammal fossils. The Park Service wants to excavate and catalog all of the fossils in order to preserve the bones from poachers and to protect them for future scientific study. But tribal president John Yellowbird Steele denies that Native people have been involved in poaching fossils from this area. He says the Park Service tried to begin a paleontological excavation in the Badlands without including the tribe in the approval process. Yellowbird Steele says this land should be under tribal control. The tribe owns the lands of the 133,000 acres on reservation. We own all the properties on it, all the minerals, all the fossils, the agates, the artifacts, and we are working towards taking over all responsibilities on the south unit of the Badlands National Park. Meanwhile, Badlands Superintendent Bill Supernaw says the park has lived up to its part of the agreement and is sharing ownership and control of this land. But Supernaw says the Park Service, as established by an act of Congress, has the right to manage this land. While we recognize that it is trust land and being managed on behalf of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, we have a larger obligation to manage it as a park for all of the people of, uh, of America. Tensions have run high over this issue. Just after the protest camp was established in 2002, the Oguala Sioux Tribe locked the gates on tribal roads leading into the South Unit. A few days later, the Park Service cut them back open, saying the tribe had no authority to close the gates. President Yellowbird Steele says the Park Service isn't respecting tribal laws. There's supposed to be a dual management of the land because the Oguala Sioux Tribe owns the land. Uh, Superintendent Supernow of the Badlands National Park says that he can unilaterally manage it uh, without consulting the tribe. He doesn't have to follow tribal law, and uh, this is causing a conflict. But both sides of this issue say the conflict is slowly being quelled in a set of negotiations that are now underway between the tribe and the Park Service. The Assistant Regional Director for Communications with the National Park Service, Flo Six, says negotiations have been going well so far. Both parties are very interested in accomplishing this, and uh, we have good momentum to accomplish that. President Yellowbird Steele says he has also been encouraged by the meeting so far. We do have differences of opinions and uh, visions and directions, and so, but we're able to talk them out, and so uh, we're working on it, and I can't say whether it's going to happen or not, but uh, we'll see. I'm optimistic about it. Yellowbird Steele says that this current conflict relates to the larger treaty claim that the Lakota have on all of the land in western South Dakota. He says the Lakota have already lost much of the land promised to them, and they now want to maintain control over the lands they have left. The tribe's attorney, Peter Capicella, says negotiations have been promising so far, but now he says action is needed. The tribe is trying to do it through good faith, government-to-government negotiations with the Department of the Interior, Those negotiations are not going to last forever, and the Park Service is really going to have to demonstrate its commitment to transfer the management of this national park back to the landowner, the tribe. There have been some good words spoken, uh, but now, you know, it's time for the parties to, to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of getting the management agreement in place. Back at the camp on Stronghold Table, a small clock radio plays some tunes broadcast on the tribal station. The sun is setting. Red and lavender hues of the Badlands are highlighted in the valley below, and the outline of the Black Hills is etched on the western horizon. Those camped here say they plan to remain until the tribe has control of these lands. Meanwhile, tribal officials will continue meeting with National Park personnel to try to find common ground on these issues without going to court. 
tribal officials and activists hope that this case will end up as an increase in tribal sovereignty for the Great Sioux Nation. For Making Contact, I'm Charles Michael Ray on the Badlands of Pine Ridge. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Hernan Scandizo, Sebastian Hatcher, Curtis Draves, Karina Muniz, and to the production intern, Eric Klein. Our theme music is by the Charlie Hunter Trio. Making Contact is an independent production funded primarily by individual contributors. For a cassette or CD copy of the program Native Lands, The Struggle for Sovereignty, program number 3004, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736. That's 800-529-5736. You can also visit our website at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director, Justin Beck, associate producer, Susanna Hines, associate manager, Bershan McKee, office manager, Peggy Law, founding director, Norman Solomon, senior advisor, David Barsamian, national advisor. And I'm your host and director of production and training, Amy Pomerlo. 